so I don't think I've been controversial enough throughout this series. I really don't. Can I say some stuff this morning that's going to really ruffle some feathers? Okay, it's not just me. I'm not going to say some things. It's actually the Bible that says this. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verse 3. Here it is. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. Well, 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 there it is, black and white, been there for thousands of years, apparently men are supposed to be in charge of women. Break out the red robes and the white bonnets because The Handmaid's Tale is a documentary, you guys. You ladies should probably not be police officers or CEOs or pastors because that would require you to have authority over men. And very clearly here in the text, the Apostle Paul says that is ungodly and wrong. Now, thank God no men amen just then, okay? I was a little nervous writing this. I'm like, oh boy, what if somebody says amen? Thankfully, nobody did. And thankfully, no women walked out in protest, okay? You ladies are willing to stick with me, which is a good thing because basically everything I just said is wrong. Now, certainly that verse is in the Bible, but it doesn't mean what most people think that it means. So what I hope to do today and next week as we continue our He Made Them series is I want to help you to understand what verses like this actually mean. And maybe just as importantly, what they don't mean. How have we misunderstood the Apostle Paul's words here? And I think that these next two messages are going to be really helpful for you because they're going to work on two levels. All right. Yeah. Two for one sermon. Okay. You're going to get to find out, I think, uh, from the text that we read, I'm going to help you to understand how a godly Christian couple should view one another, how they should, how they should value one another, how they should see one another, how they should make decisions together right? I'm going to give you this picture of what an, uh, maybe an ideal or a really healthy Christian marriage might look like. And at the same time, in order to make that happen, we got to do a good old fashioned Bible study. Okay. So if you're here and you're like, man, I really need some help strengthening my marriage. Then I think that the next two weeks are going to be productive for you. And if you're here and you're like, yeah, I need to strengthen my marriage and I need to understand the Bible. Cause dude, every time I open this thing, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. I'm so confused. I'm so lost every time I try to read it, then I'm going to help you over the next couple of weeks, give you some tools so that when you open the Bible, it comes alive. It feels like it's helpful. It feels like there's meaning and you're understanding what the text says. So I think it's going to be a good day to be in church. All right. So when you're studying a passage of scripture, there are generally three broad questions that you want to ask anytime you're reading a verse, but in particular, if there's a verse that's throwing you, you don't understand what it means. You want to ask, three really simple and straightforward questions. The first is, what does the text say? The second is, what did that text mean to the original audience? The first people that would have originally meant it, how would they have understood that particular verse? And third, what does it mean for us? The last one. Now, of course, I'm like you, okay? When I read the Bible, I, I don't care about question one and two. Who cares about that? Let's get to question number three, all right? My finances are a mess, God, so I need to go to a passage in the Bible that will tell me how I'm going to get out of debt, how I'm going to build wealth, how I'm going to be comfortable. My marriage is falling apart. I'm, these are all hypotheticals. I'm not confessing, okay? Um, <laughs> my marriage is falling apart, God, and so I want to go to 1 Corinthians 13, and I want you to show me how you're going to fix it. 
What does it mean for me? I don't care what it meant for them. They're their own people. They've got their own issues to deal with. What about me? We have a tendency to want to jump to question number three, but that's a mistake. See, when we skip question one and question two, we end up arriving at conclusions that benefit and bless us and very often are in contradiction to what the scripture is actually intending for us to understand. So asking these three questions in the right order is really key if you want to, if you want to arrive at good conclusions and interpretations when you read the Bible. In fact, you could argue that most bad interpretations of the Bible, and let me tell you, there are some, most bad interpretations of the Bible do a bad job with question one and two. That's why they end up with a bad conclusion at question number three. Okay, so let's work through this. That, that verse that we just read, let's ask these three questions. What does it say? What did it mean to the original audience? And then what does it mean for us? What does 1 Corinthians eleven three actually say? Well, that's actually the wrong question to ask. I just told you it's the right question. Man, I'm, I'm all over the place today. No, no, no. Rather than asking, what does 1 Corinthians eleven three say? Let's ask the question, what does 1 Corinthians 11 say? Let's, let's broaden it. See, one of the worst things you can do reading the Bible is to take one single verse, rip it out of its context, and then say, see, this is what the Bible says. Gets us in trouble all the time. You've probably heard interviews from famous people. Maybe you saw on TikTok, it's like, did you see what he said in this interview? And they show like a two second clip and you're like, how dare he? And then you go watch the whole interview and you're like, that's not what he meant. We know the danger of ripping something out of its larger context. That danger is present with the Bible as well. If we're not careful, we can divorce a, a sentence or a verse that's written from its larger context. That is the verses that come immediately before and the verses that come immediately after. And suddenly we get confused about what that passage is meant to say. So what does 1 Corinthians 11 have to say? I'm going to begin reading in verse number two. And we'll read on down through verse number 12. Now, just as a quick heads up, 1 Corinthians was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was an apostle and a missionary. He had actually started the church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And a few years later, he wrote them a letter called the first epistle or letter to the Corinthians. So he's writing back to this church that he started. He's giving them updates on what he's been up to. He's giving them a little extra information about how their church should be running, those sorts of things. And so he says here in verse number two, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now, verse three, this is the one that, that people get hung up on, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies, prophesying is preaching. Every woman who prays or preaches with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off and her head shaved, so then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels." I don't even know what that means. <laughs> nevertheless, in the Lord, I do have theories, but anyway, nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of the man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the first woman came from the first man, so also every man thereafter has been born of a woman, but everything comes from God. Oh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> First service, I couldn't even read the words. I kept stumbling and saying the wrong thing. So I'm just proud of myself for not making a mess out of it in this service, okay? When we read 1 Corinthians 11 in context, we discover that Paul is giving instructions to first century men and women 
as to what they should wear when they come to church in the ancient city of Corinth. Now, when you ask modern Bible readers, hey, what's the main point of 1 Corinthians 11? What's the thing that you're supposed to grab onto and take away? They're like, well, man is the head of the woman. Clearly, that's the most important thing in the passage, except that wasn't Paul's point at all. It was ancillary. It was secondary. It was supportive to the larger point that he was making there, that Christians have an obligation to dress with modesty and propriety so that Christ is on display at church and not us. That's his point. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, so what did that mean to the original audience? Well, to first century believers, it meant that when they came to church, women had to wear a head covering and men had to keep their head uncovered. Pretty straightforward. And the reason is because that's what was considered appropriate in their culture. In their culture, if a woman showed up to worship service and she had her head uncovered, they're like, hmm, girl, that is not appropriate wear for you, okay? You need to, this is, it is proper for a woman to keep her head covered and vice versa, it's improper for a man to have his uh, head covered. This is not just in Christian circles. This was a cultural thing in the first century in the Mediterranean world. We know that for a bunch of different reasons. One is because um, there was an ancient Jewish philosopher. His name was Philo. Philo is very well known. He lived and wrote at the exact same time that the apostle Paul was alive. So his writings were concurrent with 1 Corinthians Corinthians 11 that we've read today. And he said this, if a woman keeps her hair uncovered, it is a sign to all that she is not a modest woman. All right. So in their society, women were expected to keep their head covered and men were not Christian men and women. If they dishonored each other, like in the way that they presented themselves at worship services, then that would hinder the spread of the gospel, right? Cause it's like the people in the ancient city of Corinth, they would have been like, man, you heard what's going on over at that Corinthian church. Those ladies are wild and out you guys. And some dudes are like where they meet, what time, right? It's like it communicated something. <laughs> to the wider culture around them. And the apostle Paul didn't want them to get the wrong idea. He wanted them to see Jesus and not the people. So what does this mean for us in the 21st century? We said what it meant. We said what it meant to them. What does it mean for us? Well, it almost certainly, and in fact, I can say pretty confidently, it doesn't mean that all of you women need to cover your head. Like all of y'all that don't have head coverings on right now, you're sinning. And all of you guys that are wearing hats in the audience, you are sinning. It doesn't mean that. And we can confidently say that for a few different reasons. Okay. So the first is this in our world today, having a head covering on doesn't communicate anything about propriety, right? It's not like anybody looks at a woman with her head uncovered and they're like the scandal. I can't believe it. I mean, maybe the Mennonites, but nobody else. Okay. All right. So we know that it doesn't mean the same thing for us today. And two, in all the other writings in the new Testament, this command is never like expanded and extended to women in general. It's given to a specific group of women at a specific culture at a specific time in history, but there's no verse that says, Hey, all of you Christian women, anywhere you might live at any time in history, make sure you wear a head covering. It's not there. All right. Now that doesn't mean that this verse then has nothing to teach us today. It does. See, anytime there's a practice in the scripture, even if that practice no longer applies, there are other practices like this. The Bible says many times in almost every New Testament letter, greet one another with a holy kiss. Like, can you imagine if our greeters were at the door and before you came in, they had to give you a pack on the lips before you came to church? No way. Nobody would go for that because that was a cultural practice at the time. But there's always a principle behind the practice. There's always an underlying truth that we should 
should continue to live out even if we don't follow the exact practice today. And the underlying truth here is that we present ourselves in a way that keeps the spotlight on Jesus. That's what Christians are called to do. And that's what 1 Corinthians 11 means for us today. We present ourselves so that the spotlight is on Jesus and not us. We intentionally avoid dressing in a way that is overly sexualized or overly flashy. Second year of our church's existence. Sunday morning. Oh, Kim knows where the story's going. She knows exactly where it is because this is the stuff of legend amongst the staff. Second year of Connect Church's existence. We're meeting at the movie theater up at Cross Iron Mills. We're doing setup and tear down every Sunday. Boy, I do not miss those days. And so we show up for church one Sunday. It's kind of the end of summer. We're looking towards fall, but it's still really warm outside. And out of nowhere, this young lady on our dream team, who is scheduled to serve in kids ministry this day, walks through the door wearing shorts and a swimsuit top. Oh yeah. (laughs) My reaction too. Say what? It wasn't exactly a bikini, but it was definitely less than a sports bra. Okay. And, and we were like, uh, uh, am I, am I seeing what you're seeing here? What? Uh, so one of the ladies, not me, had to pull her aside and say, Hey, you're scheduled to serve in kids today. This might not be the best thing to be wearing while you're wrestling around with kids. Also, why? Like, what possessed you to think that this was a good idea? I mean, look, we did it lovingly and respectfully. And she basically said, oh, as soon as I get done with the service today, I'm going straight to the lake with my friends. And I just thought it would be easier to wear my swim clothes instead of changing later because I'm not going to have time. And we were like, no, 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 no. Here, have a T-shirt. And so we gave her a T-shirt. And today, all of our volunteers up in kids wear T-shirts each and every Sunday. And they can thank this young lady for that, okay? Now, here's the thing. When everybody saw her walk into church, we thought, oh, that's not proper. Like, that's, it's the wrong dress for this context. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, that, that's not really appropriate for what we're here to do. This is exactly what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. People would see uh, women with their hair uncovered or their hair loose and not tied up. And they would say, oh, that's not appropriate for public worship. Why do their women dress like that? I don't think I want to be a part of that church because it seems like they've got some stuff going on. All right. Now, this isn't just about physical modesty or like how much flesh, flesh we show. You might be surprised to know that the majority of the time that the Bible commands Christians to dress modestly, it isn't just talking about how, like, how much skin we show. It's actually talking about how much wealth we put on display. It really is. Like it's saying, don't dress in such a way that draws all the attention to yourself, right? You're not supposed to look like a rap star, all right? You're supposed to look like Jesus. You're supposed to reflect Jesus, especially when you're at church. So listen, that means that as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, like, is it cool to show up to church wearing $500 sneakers? These were only $350, so it's cool. Like, the cutoff is $499, so I'm good. Hey, we got to ask questions like, is it okay for a Christian woman to walk around with the $1,200 handbag? Is it okay 
to buy a pickup truck that basically costs you a mortgage? Like, are you putting your wealth on ostentatious display? This is the sort of stuff that the Apostle Paul has in mind. And as Christians, I'm not saying there's an easy answer. I'm not saying there's a clear answer. I'm just saying these are the sorts of questions that they were wrestling with. And these are the things that we need to wrestle with. Christians should honor God and one another by how they present themselves, especially at church. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 means. Now you might be sitting there saying, uh, dude, I thought we were talking about Christian husbands and wives and roles and decision-making. Exactly. See, this is what happens when you rip a verse out of context. This is what happens when you proof text something from the Bible. You just take it and make it say whatever you want. You often make it say something that's different than what it actually says. So... What does the Bible say here? Well, we can't ignore the fact that the passage actually does say man is the head of the woman. It's in there, okay? Male headship is a very real thing. But, oh, and I should also point out before I move on, this isn't the only verse that says this. You realize that, right? There are a couple other places. Ephesians 5 is the most commonly cited. Uh, It says there as well that man is the head of the wife. Next week, that's going to be the subject of our sermon. We're going to talk about Ephesians 5 and why and how and to what extent Christian women are called to submit to their husbands. So it's going to be even spicier than this week. You're definitely going to want to come back for that one. So we'll talk about it. But what does it mean? when the Bible says in these multiple places that man is the head of woman. Well, the most literal definition of head in English and in, or in Greek, the original language, is like this thing that sits on top of your shoulders, you know? It, it encases your brain, it's got your eyes and your eyebrows, like it's talking about the biological portion of the body that we call the head, yes. But clearly that's not what Paul means here. He's not saying like man is the biological head of woman, it's a metaphor, This word head is a symbol for something that is bigger and deeper, some some other truth that he wants us to understand. So what's the symbol? What's the metaphor? How does Paul understand the word head? And how do we understand or how should we understand it? Now, remember, I told you a moment ago that there are three questions we want to ask. What does it say? Well, it says that man is the head of the woman. Then the other two questions we want to ask are, what does it say to the original audience? And what does it say to us? We get ourselves into trouble if we answer those questions out of order. Okay. If we answer question three before we answer question two, then we will, uh, color or change even the answer to question number two in detrimental and dangerous ways. We don't want to ask, what does it mean to us? And then assume, well, that's probably what it meant for them too, because that's not necessarily the case. Let me give you an easy example before I show you how this plays out on first Corinthians eleven three. Let's suppose that I'm talking to a Canadian and this Canadian has no knowledge of the Bible at all. Like no concept of the stories, never heard any of it. And so I'm starting to teach them maybe the book of Genesis. And I say in Genesis chapter number three, there was a woman named Eve and she took a bite out of an apple. Now, if they have no concept of the Bible at all, she might think that Eve downgraded the Ram on her laptop. Okay. She took a bite out of an apple. (laughs) That took you a little while. I know. But listen, based on her cultural perspective, that's a totally valid way to understand what I just said. But it's not true 
because there were no laptops in Genesis 3. So we can't ask, what does it mean to us before we ask what it means to them? We have to decide what it meant in the original context and then let that inform what it means to us. All right. So this same exact thing with the bite and the apple, the same confusion happens here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. See, in our day, the modern usage and metaphor of head, it usually means boss, authority, or leader. Like when you talk about the head of a company, you talk about the head of a household, you talk about the head of the class, right? That means the authority, the boss, or the leader of those particular groups. And so if we start with question three and then go back to question two, we'll look at this passage through our cultural lens and we'll say, oh, to be the head of something means to be the boss of something. So clearly Paul is saying that men are the boss of women. Easy, done. Move on to the next text. But that's not at all what Paul means. And we know that because the word head does not have the same meaning in ancient Greek that it typically has today in English. All right. In the first century, the Christians in Corinth would not have interpreted Paul as saying man is the boss of woman. They wouldn't have read it that way. Instead, that Greek word, it's there on the screen, kephale. That Greek word kephale is most commonly used in first century Greek and in other places in the Bible to mean or origin or source, origin or source, not boss or leader, but origin and source. Now this English, this uh, meaning, it does exist in English as well. So we could talk about the headwaters of a river. We're using the word head and we're talking about the headwaters of the river. So we would say the headwaters of the Bow River are at the glacier up in the mountains. Now we're not saying the glacier is in charge of the river. The glacier dictates where the river goes. Actually, the glacier has no say over where the river goes, right? The landscape down here dictates where it goes. No, the headwaters are the source. The glacier is the origin of the Bow River. When a teacher picks one of her kids, one of her students and says, you're going to be the head of the line. She's not saying, now, all the other kids are going to fall in line behind you and you're in charge. So you can mix them up, bring your friends up to the front so they get their snack first, send your enemies to the back of the line. You're in charge of the line. You're the head. No, it means you're the source. You're the origin. Everybody else is going to follow you. You with me? That's exactly the way that it was used in the first century. Now, I don't want you to think I'm making stuff up. Because I, I can say whatever I want to, right? And most of you are not going to fact check me, so I could probably get away with it. But I want to prove it to you. So I, I did something that I don't normally do. Normally, when I put the verses on the screen, I intentionally cut out all of the footnote markings because it just clutters the text. It makes it a little confusing. But today I left it in on purpose. If you read the Bible, you read on you version or you have a paper Bible or whatever, you're going to see often little letters and numbers in brackets, superscript above the text. And what that means is there is some note from the translators there that you might want to know about. So if you have you version in your hand right now, or if you have a paper Bible in almost every major translation, there will be a footnote right here in this place. And if you go to the bottom, it says another way that you can interpret the word head is source or origin. So it's there in the text. It's just footnoted. So we don't give it a lot of credibility, right? But it's literally there in the Bible. It's been there all along. 
If we go back and we look at the early church fathers, these are people that like pastored churches in the century or two or three right after the apostle Paul and, and uh, the other apostles. They also understood Paul to mean source or origin. They preached on this passage and they taught it. So Theodore and Eusebius and Cyril and Athanasius and a bunch of other names that I can't pronounce. They all said when the apostle Paul says man is the head of woman, what they mean is he is her source or her origin. There's a, a modern scholar named Philip Payne. He's done awesome work in this. If you ever want to kind of like understand gender studies, particularly as it relates to female pastors and things like that, you should read any of his works. They're all quite good. And he points out in one of his books that if you go to Greek dictionaries, they'll say like, okay, here are all the sources that use uh, kephale as origin or source, right? All the ancient writings that use it this way. And then here are ones that use it to mean authority or boss. If you go to the most commonly cited ancient source, it's from 500 AD. That's 450 years after 1 Corinthians was written. So it's like, I would venture to guess that we use words a little bit differently today than Shakespeare did in his day, right? Anybody remember lit class? The words don't mean the same things. And so we can't assume that just because it was used to mean boss or leader or authority in 500 AD, that it meant the same thing. The, the, the uh, context and the clues tell us that that's not the case. Besides, all the evidence that you need to know that the Apostle Paul means this as source instead of boss is right there in the text. If you look at verse number nine, Paul points out that women, uh, that woman rather came from man, right? Talking about Adam and Eve, woman came from man. And that's source language. Where's her origin? Where's her source? Verse 12, he states that although woman came from man, every other man has come from a woman and both men and women come from God. Ultimately, it's all source language. There's no authority idea here in the text at all. In fact, next week, when we start talking about submission in a marriage, you know what we're going to determine? We're going to understand, we're going to discover that submission is a Christian virtue, not a feminine virtue. You're going to discover that Jesus calls every believer to submit. And, and he specifically warned his disciples in a couple of places against being overly concerned with possessing authority. Why? Because there's only one that actually has authority. And it ain't me and it ain't you. All right? Amen. So this text, the clues inside of it, they show us that we should be reading it as source. We can also see that the source translation, this idea that man is the source of woman, it, it more naturally fits what Paul says there in verse number three. I'm going to put a couple of different ways to understand this here on the screen. Stick with me for just a moment. We're going to be past this in a sec if you're, if you're flagging, all right? Um, he says, I want you to understand that the, and you can insert source or boss there for the word head. Um, if we understand this to mean boss, we run into a couple of problems. If we read, I want you to realize that the boss of every man is Christ, the boss of the woman is man, and the boss of Christ is God. If we understand it that way, then we, we start to run into a couple of issues. So the first is, if Paul had in mind authority, right? If he had in mind who's most in charge here, you would expect him to go from either ascending order of authority or descending order of authority. You would expect them to say, God is the boss of Christ. Christ is the boss of man. Man is the boss of woman. Woman is the boss of kids. The kids are the boss of the hamster. It's just on down the family. It goes in authority. 
Or you would expect them to reverse it and say, you know, uh, the woman is subject to the man, the man is subject to Christ, Christ is subject to God. You would expect them to do that, but he doesn't. If he means authority, bosshood, leadership, um, if he means supervisor, this text makes no sense. It's in completely random order. But if he means source or origin, it is in the perfect order. Let me show you how. I want you to realize, I want you to remember that the source of every man is Christ. That's Genesis 1. God created mankind from the dust, created Adam from the dust of the ground. Now, John 1 tells us that it was actually the second person of the Godhead, Jesus himself, who did the creating in Genesis 1. There wasn't anything created without him that was created, is the weird way that he phrases it. So Genesis 1 Uh, Christ is the source of every man. Then man is the source of the woman. That's Genesis two. She was taken from his side. Then we get to that last one. And this is where people get thrown off. Wait, uh, God is the source of Christ. Yeah. In the incarnation. This is John one. It explicitly says this, that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. When Jesus came to earth in Matthew 1, when he came to earth in the incarnation at the very first Christmas, his source, the place he came from, was God. So chronologically, source makes perfect sense. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, John 1. It it lines up very, very cleanly if we look at it that way. One more quick thing to point out here. Actually, maybe two more, because why not? I'm going to give you a bonus piece of info that the first service didn't get. Um, So the first is this. If we understand this verse to mean boss, we actually commit heresy. (laughs) Okay, I don't use the word heresy a lot because I get frustrated with how flippantly and easily the word heresy gets thrown around in our world today. There are a lot of Christians that like any interpretation of the Bible they disagree with, they're like, oh, that's heresy. (laughs) Okay, I don't like that. I think there are a, a very small handful of first order foundational doctrines that we should go to war over. Like we should fight tooth and nail to preserve the historic and orthodox understanding of these five or six doctrines. One of which is the triune nature of God, that God is three persons in one essence or substance. See, when we say that Christ, or rather that God is the boss of Christ, we break the unity and the community of the Trinity. We make Jesus subordinate to God the Father eternally, and the church rejected that as a heresy like 1,700 years ago. The very first church council was about rejecting or or deciding on this view of Jesus. Was he a lesser God? Was he a created being? It was called Arianism. And the church rejected it and said, no, Jesus is co-eternal. He's co-substantial. He is co-powerful with the Godhead as well. And so if we say Jesus is subordinate to God, eternally, then we create a distorted view. And I think our, our ancient forefathers in the faith would be like, no, 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 you guys. Let me take you back to, to catechism school here, okay? We don't want to break that. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, but wait, 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 wait. Because I know there were some things that Jesus said. He said, I only know what the Father tells me. 
and I only do what the Father allows me to do. And I'm obedient to God, my Father. Yes. So let me help you to understand the orthodox understanding of Jesus. All right. What we know is that in the beginning, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was fully equal and shared in the Godhead, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. When it came time to enact the plan of salvation, that is, somebody was going to come to earth, somebody was going to die for our sins, Jesus volunteered. The the scriptures tell us in Philippians chapter number two, an incredibly important passage. It says this, when it came time for the incarnation, Jesus did not believe that equality with God was something to be held on to. Instead, he emptied himself of his divinity, of his glory with God. And he became like us. He took on the form of a humble servant. He became obedient, even obedience unto death on the, even unto obedience of death on the cross. But then you look at Jesus' high priestly prayer and he prays, Father, give me the glory that I had with you in the beginning. When he resurrected from the grave, he received back everything that he voluntarily laid aside. So yes, he was subject to the Father for the period of the incarnation, but not forever and always. He's not forever second now to the Father. No, that is heresy. So if we read it, as God is the boss of Christ, we get ourselves into really theological sticky waters, okay? We need to be really careful with that. Here's the bonus piece of content. I just, I've always asked this question. I've never found a satisfactory answer, okay? Um, If man is the head or the boss of woman, or, or more specifically what he's talking about here is husbands are the boss, leader, authority of wives. Who's the authority and leader of women who are not married? You say, oh, her dad. Well, not every woman has a dad, okay? And not every one of them functions as an authority. So there are at least some cases in which a woman doesn't have a head. She doesn't have an authority. So let me ask you this question. Why on earth would any woman ever want to get married to a Christian man if she is going to give up her agency and authority? It just doesn't make sense to me. Like she's been functioning just fine for 17 years as her own head. You're telling me that she was wrong all that time and now she can be right by getting it. It just doesn't make sense. But if we say, no, 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 man and woman, they are the source and the origin of one another. That is, they both need each other. They can't exist without one another. That God wants them to view each other as partners and equals with mutual love and respect and care. And as we'll see next week's submission, when we start to paint this picture of what a Christian marriage looks like, you know what we get a a bigger, a better view of? The Trinity itself. We get a good view of how God functions in perfect community. And that's what we're supposed to be painting. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul says your marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, of God and his people. It is a picture of how we were always intended to live. So what's the big takeaway from this section of scripture? It's that men and women honor God when they honor one another. That's it. Like, this is the big truth. This is the takeaway. When we honor one another well, we honor our creator well. This principle of of the relationship between the sexes, between people, it's just an extension of what Jesus taught in Matthew 22. There's one time he was teaching, this guy raised his hand. He's like, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, there's not only one, there's actually two. And he was like, you can't have two greatest commandments. And he's like, I'm Jesus, let me do what I want. He said this, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. But a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as your Yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. People honor God 
when they honor one another. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, so how does this play out? Let's get real practical. How would this play out in a Christian marriage? There are a lot of different ways, okay? But one that very naturally flows out of this discussion about authority and headship and leaders and all those different things. One that very natural, one question that naturally flows out of that is how should a godly wife and husband, how should a godly marriage make decisions? When there are, when there are uh, questions facing the family, should we take this new job and leave Calgary and go to Toronto? Don't, it's not worth it, I promise. Um, <laughs> should, the kids, should the kids go back to public school or should they go to private school? Ah, uh, maybe. Um, if, if, should we buy a home at this price point in this neighborhood or should we buy a home at that price point in that neighborhood? When there's a decision to be made and particularly when there is disagreement or a lack of unity between a husband and wife on these two issues, how should we decide? Now, the traditional understanding of this verse basically says, well, men get the final say. They get the first say if they want it. They definitely get the final say. If there's ever any dispute, the husband gets to put his foot down and say, well, I'm the head of the household, so the choice is mine. We're going to do what I think is best. And that's what many of you have been taught. You've gone to church for years and you've always heard, yep, in the end, the husband is the one who makes the choice because he's the head of the household. This is what many, many Christian marital resources teach. Uh, a very famous one is called Love and Respect. It's, it's, uh, it's not terrible. Like there's a lot of good stuff in there. But the author, Dr. Emerson Egrich says this, in the case of a couple stalemated over clashing preferences, God established the husband as the managing head and the tiebreaker for family decisions. And in support of that statement, he cites 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5 and, you know, some, some passages like that. Again, while a lot of what he says is good and helpful to struggling marriages, I have to disagree. Like we've already seen how that's not the way the apostle Paul understood the word head. That's not his point that men are supposed to be in charge and women are supposed to submit and obey. And then we'll talk about the submission piece next week. So I, I don't, like if there's a couple that comes to me and they say, Dan, we are really struggling. We don't know what to do here. I'm not going to bring them to 1 Corinthians 11, 3. And I'm not going to bring them to Ephesians 5, 21. Instead, I'm going to bring them to a passage nobody ever expects. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. We'll put that on the screen. This is going to come out of left field for some of you. The Apostle Paul, same book we just read a moment ago, 1 Corinthians, right? Just a few chapters earlier, he said this. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. And all God's people said, okay, okay. Unless, unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Okay, now Paul is dealing with a very specific topic here, like the frequency of sex in a Christian marriage. Y'all didn't even know the Bible said that, but it does, okay? He's dealing with that. But what he says is so incredibly important. He says the decision to abstain from sex in a marriage, really what he's saying here is the choice to fast from sex. Some of you have been fasting for years and you didn't know. You're like, God, I hope I'm getting credit for all this fasting I'm doing right now. Um, the decision to fast in a Christian marriage is reached by mutual prayerful agreement. He doesn't say, hubs, you're the head of the house. So if you ain't getting it enough, put your foot down. Or if you ain't in the mood, just tell her to buzz off. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. In fact, all the language here is mutual. It treats them as equal partners. He says the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife has authority over his body. And the wife doesn't have authority, but the husband does. There is this mutualness behind it all. And I don't think that this rubric for 
Christian families making decisions only applies to the bedroom. In fact, the only, like, this is crazy, you guys. The only text in the New Testament that gives any specific help when two, when a couple doesn't agree on what to do is this one. And the framework he says is that a Christian couple should reach their decisions through mutual prayerful agreement. Now, look, I'm not telling you that my way of marriage is the best and right and the only one. Okay. Like if you, if you and your husband or you and your wife, you agree that she's going to be a trad wife. She's going to wear a head covering. She's going to stay at home and homeschool the kids. She's going to bake cookies every day for you when you get home. If that's what you two agree on mutually through prayer and conviction in the scriptures, go for it. But when we say that is the godly picture, no, 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 no. The godly picture is a couple who reach their decisions through mutual prayerful agreement. That's the way Amber and I have decided to live our marriage. We've been married for 20 years. Let me tell you, there are a lot of disagreements in 20 years of marriage. You say, oh, the pastor fights with his wife. Yeah, huh? <laughs> and it's usually my fault. I'm just saying, but here's the deal. We approach things very differently. And very often I'll say, this is clearly the best course of action. And she's like, no, that's clearly the best course of action. What do we do? Well, we've come up with a series of questions. These are not like magic. They're probably not the only questions, but between us and other resources that we've come about, when there is a disagreement that we cannot resolve, when there is like, we both believe a separate course of action is the right one. We've agreed first and foremost, we're not going to move forward until one of us agrees with the other. Does that mean we miss some opportunities? Yeah, probably sometimes, but not at the expense of our marriage. We're still good 20 years in. Does that mean that there is a lot of frustrating nights where you're like, I can't go to bed angry, so I love you, and then you turn over, and you're like, <laughs> yep. Okay, but we've developed a series of questions that have helped us. I walk couples through this when they go through uh, difficulties and, and, and um, differences uh, on what to do. Here are the questions. I'll just read them quickly. Do the scriptures offer any principles on this particular question? Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Who feels most strongly about this? Like if one person is like, I kind of think this is the way to go, but the other person is like, absolutely not. I am fully convinced this is the right way. Maybe we ought to give them the, the benefit of the doubt. Who's going to be impacted most by this decision? If we're making a decision and it's going to impact me the most, then maybe my voice should carry a little bit more weight in the conversation. Who's prayed the most regarding this decision? If Again, can I confess something to you guys? Sometimes Amber will and I will be deadlocked and um, we'll say, let's pray about it. three days. Let's take three days and pray. We'll come back together and we'll say, this is what I feel like God is saying. And three days later, we'll get together. And Amber's like, I've been praying about this day and night. And I'm like, oh, I think I prayed once or twice. <laughs> I meant to, but I got busy. Well, look, if I haven't done the work, then maybe I ought to trust the one who did. I'm just saying, okay. Have we fasted over this decision? Fasting can give you breakthroughs that sometimes nothing else can. What's the wise thing to do in this circumstance? What's the wise thing? Is it to spend X number of dollars or Y number of dollars? What's the wise thing? What outside counsel have we sought? What have pastors or godly mature people told us that they believe we should do or they would do in our circumstances? What do our past decision-making patterns reveal? If I come to Amber and I'm like, oh, I got a good investment idea, girl. I got, I mean, like, we're going to get so rich, but I bankrupted us four times in the past. Maybe I'm not the one to be making these sorts of decisions. Again, that's not a confession. That was a hypothetical example. <laughs> what this means is that sometimes the husband's going to have the final say. Sometimes the wife's going to have the final say. And sometimes God's going to have the final say. There are times Amber and I have agreed on something. And God's like, no, 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 no. You're both wrong. <laughs> 
See, the point here is that we don't make decisions based on some superficial hierarchy of position or power, but instead we seek God together. We get on the same page. We are united as one and we move forward in faith because we've spent the time to get to the point of unity with one another. That's the picture God wants Christian marriages to paint for the rest of the world. God, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you help those marriages that are struggling, particularly God, if they are um, at a deadlock over some decision? Would you give them unity through your spirit? Would you help them to lovingly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? And God, would you help us to see how good and healthy marriage can be when we view each other as our necessary source and partner in all of life's journey? We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.